We've begun to look together uh, for a, a little while about the, uh, the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, these figures that appear in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and in many ways provide the foundation for uh, God's people, uh, the people of Israel, from which, of course, comes Jesus, the Savior of the world. And uh, in these early stories, we see uh, Abraham and Sarah setting out. They are called from this, this town with this rather beautiful name, Ur of the Chaldees. And they, they travel up, uh, up the Euphrates. Um, sorry, I've not brought my map this week. We're basically up the Euphrates and then down uh, into uh, the land of Canaan, which, of course, ultimately becomes uh, the promised land. And they are called there by, by the, the voice of God and the promise that as they follow him, so he will bless them. And uh, in the midst of all of this, they have uh, various adventures. Uh, they end up going down into Egypt where uh, Abraham pretends that Sarah is not his wife, but is his sister. And also uh, he comes to the rescue of Lot, who is in uh, trouble with local kings. And Abraham has to fight uh, in order to get Lot, his nephew, back into freedom. So when we meet uh, Abraham at the start of this chapter, start of chapter 15, there seems to be a certain anxiety in the air. There seems to be something which isn't quite as happy or confident or as at peace as it has been when we first met him in chapter 12. So the word of the Lord here says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I'm your shield and your great reward. There seems to be something going on for Abraham, which means he needs this word from God, whether it's been his experiences in Egypt or whether it's been the experience of battling against local kings in order to get Lot free. Something has happened, which means that Abraham needs this word, do not be afraid. And you might remember that last week I mentioned that, that when Abraham first heard the invitation of God to come and to follow him and to be a blessing to the whole world, we hear nothing from Abraham. It just says Abraham left. He did as he was asked. There was a kind of remarkable silence, a very loud silence, as Abraham simply did as he was asked. But here, Abraham speaks. And here, there is a sense of the human Abraham coming to the surface. And here, there is anxiety and even complaint. He says, Sovereign Lord, I can't read, I'm, sorry, I have to read it up there, sorry, it's too small. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And then again, you have given me no children, so a servant in my house shall be my heir. The Abraham that we saw in chapter 12 has changed to the Abraham here, which is much more uh, the normal pattern, actually, of conversations between people and God in the scriptures. It's real, it's honest, and it's quite raw. I'm not sure about this promise. 
You told me all this is going to happen, but so far it happens. It hasn't happened. There seems to be a growing sense of doubt, almost injustice, almost woundedness. You promised, and it hasn't happened. God speaks to him and assures him, gives him another reassurance. He says, this man will not be your heir, but you will have a son. And then there is this moment of real intimacy, tenderness. It just says, he took him outside. Wonder how that happened. He took him outside and says, look up at the sky and count the stars. There wouldn't have been much light pollution then. Hopefully he would have been able to see the whole Milky Way. And he says, so shall your offspring be. Nothing's changed. But he has heard the voice of God. And he's had this encounter and he's been asked to look up at the stars. And something happens inside Abram. Abram believes and he credited it. The Lord credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord is pleased, delighted that he still trusts him. You see, there are excellent reasons not to trust him. But Abraham chooses in this encounter to trust with God. One writer puts it like this. Abraham had received a specific promise from God, but he did not seem to receive what was promised, and he could do nothing to achieve it. He was helpless, so much so that the promise appeared to mock him. Yet his response was to look at the greatness of the one who had spoken and to accept that he took responsibility for the fulfillment of his promise. Faith rests on the fact that God is faithful. In other words, Abraham chooses not to look this way, but to look this way. He chooses to go back to God and to trust in his nature and his character. And, and because it seems that God is so delighted with this response that he gives him a sort of a confirmation, a, 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 an act, a ceremony, something that will affirm this moment of faith. And it's a strange one. It's a strange one. Abraham is to bring a cow, okay, a heifer, a goat, and a sheep, a ram, and two birds, a dove and a pigeon. Okay, so there's quite a lot of livestock going on here, okay? And, and they are to be sacrificed. They are to be killed. There is the shedding of blood. And for the bigger animals, they are to be cut in half. It's quite uh, sort of earthy uh, stuff here, but they're to be cut in half, and they're to be placed at some distance from one another, the halves of the animals or the two birds. And Abraham is to wait. 
And Josie quite rightly read out the verse that I'm afraid of, of, I must have omitted through the, through the, um, uh, through the PowerPoint, is that, that, that we're told that birds of prey came down to, to, to peck at the corpses and Abraham scares them away. And then as the sun is setting, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And then there is this remarkable vision. There is a fire pot and a blazing torch. And you know, I've, I've, I've read a couple of the scholars this week, and they don't seem to know why it's a blazing torch and a fire pot. Some people think it's a, it's a prefiguring of the fire of God coming down onto Mount Zion. Other people just say, well, we're not told. But there's these two things that happen, both of which contain fire, and they move between the pieces. And it's almost as if the presence of God is saying, look, here am I, and here are you, and I am binding us together. From now on, there is a new and deep relationship which is given this word covenant. Covenant. This deep, profound commitment of God to his people. And at this point, Abram does nothing. He sits or stands and watches God initiates this. God completes it. God gives him this remarkable vision and this promise. I am faithful and you have trusted me and therefore we are now bound together in this new and deep relationship which is so precious it needs a new word. The word of covenant. A word which Jesus picks up as he gives us the bread and the wine. Eat and drink. This is shed for you for the new covenant. The relationship which draws not just the people of Israel, but the whole world to have the opportunity to come into relationship with him. Based on the character and the nature of God, the shedding of blood and the promise that he has put himself into covenant with us. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it, as Paul says. So all of this is happening 4,000 years ago in the life of Abraham and Sarah, 2,000 years ago in the life of Jesus. What difference does that make to us today or well, firstly and really most importantly we remember the wonderful and liberating truth that our relationship with God is based not on who we are but on who he is that however much we might mess up that however real our shortcomings are However poorly we live up to what it means to be a child of the covenant, he is faithful and he has bound himself to us. So this relationship is secure because it is based on him and his initiative. We belong to him. He longs for us to enjoy this relationship.
longs for us to delight in its strength and its security, longs for us to rejoice that we are his covenant people. Individually, may not be struggling with, uh, with a sense of sin at the moment, but, but most Christians do at some point in their lives. Just painfully aware of, of something that's happened, something that they have done, something for which they are responsible, for which I am responsible. And you look to God and you think, well, are you going to give up on me? Have I somehow done something which breaks this? This reminds us that we cannot because it is at his initiative and he loves us and he has bound himself to us in covenant so he delights for us to return in repentance and forgiveness. It is the prodigal son who remains the son even though he lives appallingly. His father is still looking for him and runs down the road and wraps his arms around him. The covenant is based on God's goodness, not on ours. And therefore, whenever we come home, he is just delighted to see us. It is about him, his nature, his character, and his fulfillment. And we trust that because it is based on his character and not ours, that his promises to us will be fulfilled particularly and perhaps especially when there is evidence to the contrary. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't see the answers. They couldn't see the signs of God's promises being fulfilled, but they chose to believe. When we look out at the world today, can we see evidence of God's promises being fulfilled, of the kingdom coming, of the church growing Sometimes it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to see the kingdom coming. When we look as far as the, the edges of Europe and we see that horrible war in Ukraine. When we see the effects of climate change affecting countries that do not or barely contribute to it, like the floods in Pakistan. You only need to dig a little deeper, don't you, into the news, into the, to the world around us, and you will see suffering, injustice, prejudice, and discrimination. And that's even before you start on the shortcomings of those of us who call on the name of Christ. It's perfectly reasonable, isn't it, to look to God and say, where is it? Where are these answers where are the fulfillment of your promises? Where is the kingdom coming? Where is the difference that you said you would make? And then we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice either to say, it's no good, it's not going to happen. Or like Abraham, we have a choice, an opportunity to look back at the nature of and character of God and say I trust you and I will wait and I will watch 
Think of Simeon, great, great man of God we meet in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. He had been promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord's anointed, until he saw the Saviour. I tell you, if I'd been given that promise, I'd be waiting to see some bloke about six foot four, rippling with biceps, possibly with a weapon or two. Here we go. What does he get? He gets a baby. But it's enough. And he says, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. You have been faithful. We have a choice, don't we? Always and every time. Do we trust, can we trust that he who has called us, he who has promised to bless us, he who has promised that we will be part of the coming of his kingdom and the redemption of his world, that he is faithful. Ultimately, it is not up to us. It is about him. And this covenant we are drawn into is just brilliant because all we are asked to do is trust in God's goodness. Amen.